The good people effect is something very special that happens when we surround ourselves with the right people to help us grow. The show is based on three main pillars, which are creativity, adventure, and purposeful living. My intention is to create positive momentum in the direction of real human growth. And I believe by taking a glimpse into the lives and minds of good people through deep conversations, we have the opportunity to open ourselves up to immense growth that can be later injected back into this crazy world. This is more than just another podcast. It's an energy of intentional growth that's been manifested from the beauty of the creative spirit, the call for adventure, and the power of purposeful living. Welcome to the Good People Effect podcast. I'm so excited because today's a very special day. Today's the day that I relaunched the podcast. It's season two and it's ready to go, ready for your ears. So what is the Good People Effect? What's it all about and what's happening? Well, I'm actually putting together a series of conversations. I've been having conversations for quite a while and these conversations I've really felt need to be shared with people. They need to be heard. I've developed so much by having these conversations with high-level thinkers that I feel like I've really expanded my consciousness and I really want to help other people evolve and push themselves further to create this effect in the world where we're surrounding ourselves with the right people and we're really moving forward towards living a more meaningful life. So if that's what you're into, if that's something that might interest you, if you're really into developing yourself, then this podcast is for you. This is the perfect podcast for you, actually. So uh, last couple of months, I've been, wait, wait, let's let's backtrack a little bit. About a year and a half, I sold almost all my things, jumped on a plane, and I've been traveling around in search of myself ever since. I haven't quite found myself just yet, but I'm definitely on the on the right track. And I've, I've just had a huge influx of experiences into my life. And I decided a couple of months ago that this podcast and sharing this with the world was something that I just needed to do. So about three months ago, I started recording episodes. I've got a whole host of amazing guests on the show, and we've had interesting, intricate chats about creativity, adventure, purposeful living, and we've spoken about all different aspects of kind of developing ourselves from the inside out. Now, um, I'm relaunching this show to really share this with you guys. I've got had some amazing yeses from some amazing people that have said that have agreed to come onto the show, including the author of my very favorite book, Vagabonding. So it's it's super exciting, and I can't wait to kind of move forward with this. Let's talk about today's guest. So today's guest is Charlie Gilkey. He's the founder of Productive Flourishing, which is a brand, but it's also a podcast. And what he does there is he works with thought leaders and change makers in the world to really help them do their best work. He, he's recently released a book called Start Finishing, How to Get From Idea to Done. And I felt like that would be a perfect um, conversation to have to really launch the podcast because that's the stuff I really want to be doing. I want to start doing my best work and he's really, you know, he's an ex-army veteran and he's got a PhD in philosophy and he's an expert in productivity. So I was like, this is perfect. This is really going to help some people become more productive, how to find out, you know, what your best work is. It'll help you find that out and it'll also help you start doing that how to organize your shit, how to start getting things done in a really productive and effective way. So that's what we talked about, and I'm super pumped to share this with you. So stay tuned to the show and get ready for plenty of good stuff to come your way. And thank you for really you know, taking a chance on this podcast and allowing the good people effect on some level to work within you. 
I've also got a website, goodpeopleeffect.com, where I'm going to put heaps of good stuff, including free online courses. I'm going to be getting potent nuggets of information from the episodes, and I'm going to be putting them in a simple format on the website. I'm also going to be putting together reading lists, like recommended reading, which I think will really help you develop yourself. Also, there's going to be a list of podcasts, other podcasts that you can listen to. So stay tuned for plenty of good stuff. Head over to goodpeopleeffect.com if you're interested in any of that and jump onto the mailing list for a monthly newsletter with you know heaps of good stuff coming your way. Uh, but I will never spam you. So that's a promise that I'm throwing out to you as well. So uh, get ready for the good stuff. And uh, here's my chat with Charlie. Awesome. We're ready to go. Um, how's it going? How's life? You know, life is good. You are catching me right before I go on a like four or five day solitude retreat. Mm-hmm. And so I'm in this interesting transition space between sort of almost down cycling because I'm like, I got this podcast. But then after that, you know, an hour later, I'll be in a cabin in the woods. So talk to me about this solitude retreat. What happens at one of these? You know, it depends. Um, so it's a weird thing. First off, I unplugged from Brett basically everything and so um i drive with me with my phone or i have my phone on me before i go but then once i get there i just keep it in the car um and i try not to get i don't have any devices that really get online no email no social media um screw instagram screw all of that so it's just you know remember that part in our life remember those days in our life before you were omnipresently connected to things um so we try to go back to that um and then it's a mixture of playing guitar, a lot of writing, some journaling, sketching, sitting in a hot tub, making a fire, um, you know, maybe play some video games. Um, that's the one concession that I will have. I won't be like streaming overwatch or anything. Um, and just kind of rinse and repeat for a few days. And how often do you do this kind of thing? Not as often as I would like. Um, I try to do them at least once a year. Um, it's been two years since I've had one. Um, I would like to get them to at least twice a year, but my wife and I, we also do quarterly retreats where we do something similar like that. We get away and we try to time it around um, changing of the seasons um, because that's an energetic shift for both of us. And so we just try to reconnect and, and do that. Yeah, I was having a conversation recently with someone they were talking about like life coming and going in seasons as well. Do you <laughs> feel like that happens in sync with the seasons at all with nature? I think there are different seasons of life though, right? Because I'm cresting 40 now and it feels like my thirties have been a very definite season, right? And it feels like my forties, especially with the work I've done over the last decade, it feels like a newer season of my life, you know, in that way. And so, um, I would, that's, that's the way I think about seasons of life more so than the changing of the year. But I do think most of us are more sensitive to the changing of the seasons than we really let on. Um, it's just we caffeinate or we do different things to try to overcome our depressive cycles. For instance, um, summer is my depressive cycle. So it's when I get you know, mel- much more melancholy. It's when I get stupefied about everything. I don't know what the hell I'm doing with my life. Um, and I don't want to do anything. My motivation is super low. Do you notice this pattern within yourself over the years? Oh, yeah, over the years. And so I've noticed this for at least the last decade, but I think it was there prior, except for I had enough events in my life. They were either high op tempo, either through the military or I worked at summer camps or, you know, I um, had other trips that I had planned in the summer. So I kind of artificially shifted 
my energy based on activities, but left at my natural state, I've always been slower in the summer. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's great that you've noticed that and you can kind of, you know, um, ske- I don't know if you schedule that in, but you can kind of plan things around that. And I guess the season thing with the seasons of nature, um, it's a really great way to plan events, right? Because it's like a good way to mark the year. You kind of keep things in order and you kind of, as you naturally shift into another, you know, phase of yourself, you could be doing something that's kind of more, I don't know, productive is the right word, but I guess that's part of the conversation we're having today. So I guess in that kind of range. So that's amazing. I'm, I'm looking forward for you for this retreat. I think it sounds like an amazing thing to do. And I think in today's day and age with everything kind of that's going on in this crazy world, it's, it's never a bad idea to unplug and, and really connect back to, like you said, you were doing, you know, music, playing some music, some creativity involved and, and having some downtime with the video game. So that's, that sounds nice. And it's nice that you've only allowed yourself that kind of one concession. Um, but you've done that intentionally, like you've intentionally allowed that for yourself. That sounds super interesting. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. It's, it's been, uh, I don't know, man. Um, someone else asked me about this too, but I think we spend so much of our life fighting ourselves and fighting what's natural for ourselves. And we end up wearing ourselves out and it leads to no additional work. It leads to no additional happiness. Um, in fact, it, it puts us in reverse. So I think for me, it's at this point, it's just accepting it. And you're absolutely right. I do. Like I know from pretty much mid-June until about the third week in July, it's like don't make any strategic plans. Don't sell anything major. Like don't have any major projects if you don't have to. Like all the things not to do um, because – that's just where you are. But also don't beat yourself up. Don't try to make yourself be somewhere else with it. Just it's a season. It's like when you're hungry or when you got to go to the bathroom, we don't have a big story about that. We're hungry or we got to go to the bathroom. You do what you need to do and then you move on to the next thing. Yeah. It's interesting looking at things that way and just allowing things to be as they are in the moment and not kind of putting yourself down for any of that. And just realizing that that's, you know, natural. It's a part of you. It's a part of what you're going through and it's a part of your story and that it won't last forever, that there will be a time where that changes. And that's what, that's, I think that the idea of seasons really rings at home. And, and if we remind ourselves of that, it, it helps us get through those times where otherwise we might be going down like a slippery slope and slippery slope in the other direction. Yeah, for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. And just follow nature. That's what, that's why we do it. Right. That's why we do our retreats around that. Cause it's like, where is this season seeming to take us and just follow that? Cause it's a way better guide to, I think our humanity in many ways. Yeah. than our other sources. Yeah, and it's nice just to be able to spend some time in nature. I feel like in today's world, it's, it's getting harder and harder to do that, depending on how you set your things up and, and what kind of life you're leading, of course. I mean, you've always got the opportunity for it, but it's it can become very difficult in life to get into nature and really kind of, you know, take in some of what's going on. And I guess breaking things up in this kind of a way where you're setting up, you know, specific times where you have nothing but nature around you, that's that's really special. And I, I guess we can all look for ways within our own lives to be able to do that because it can only add good. I can't see that being bad in any way. Um, so you mentioned a little bit earlier uh, and, you know, obviously I'm familiar with your work and I really do love it, Charlie. Um, I, you mentioned a bit earlier the military. And I really, when I was kind of preparing for this chat, I was thinking about, you know, just how interesting your background is with philosophy and the military aspect of things. And it's kind of like the experiences that you must have gone through in your life and how you're kind of, you're, I guess, a fusion of your experiences, right? So like that must be fascinating. 
And do you feel like the the your history with philosophy and the military has kind of added something special to your life that now you can use in other ways? Yes, because I don't see a day where I'm not using both. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we all have unique experiences. I, I think that one, that that particular meld, is always balancing a bias for action and systems and ways of thinking about action and power and energy. And that's coming more from the military side with the philosophy being much more about principles and values and end goals um, and and what we're really trying to do. So they both meld really well for me. Um, And, you know, when I'm giving speeches, sometimes I'll say, okay, so here's what's going on. I've got, you know, the military background and I've got an academic background. And as we're talking, I'm not sure which is going to come up when, um, because there's always a little bit of jazz in everything that I do, um, and that, that just where it goes. And so there will be a conversation, and I'll just sort of slide into talking about Aristotle or talking about this, or there'll be some other conversation. I'll just slide into talking about military operations and what happened in this one thing. And that can be surprising for people unless they know about it. But it's always this meld of one – what are we really trying to do here? Where are we really going? And then two, have we made our best guess about how we're going to get there and doing the work to get there? And I get personally really um, frustrated with myself, sometimes with friends who are all about the idea, like where we're trying to go, but there's no action that follows. There's no, um, there's no manifesting that in the world. And then on the other hand, there's just the – I can get just as frustrated with people who are all just about the action, the doing, 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 and get so cra- so caught up in that that they forget to ask, but are we on the right road? Are we better off? Um, is doing the answer here or is not doing the answer here? And so being able to have – the ability to just dive into things and focus on them and at the same time have just a little metacognitive thing that's like, is this the right thing? Are you focusing? Are you open to new experiences? Um, are you trying to hang on to the plan of yesterday that yesterday actually smashed to bits, right? Or are you looking at this opportunity in this moment to um, find a new way into where you're trying to go? Like, I don't know. I I can't not live without both of those sides of myself um, showing up and interplaying and mixing. Um, And that's actually how I ended up doing what I do at Productive Flourishing, because at the time I started Productive Flourishing or what became Productive Flourishing, I was simultaneously pursuing that career um, as an academic philosopher. And I was a you know, in the army and I was an army joint force military logistics coordinator. And I just kind of saw that this world that I was creating with productive flourishing allowed me to synthesize both in a way that either of the careers would not let me do. So was that the reason for starting productive flourishing? What, how did you, how did you come to the idea to start and go in that direction and use these skills that I guess I don't even know how often people look back at the reason they are where they are and, and kind of how they've built up these skills within, you know, even within those two different, you know, sets. Um, 
you know, what came, how, how did you come up with the idea of it and how did you think to first kind of mix these two together? I think it came from the fact that in both of those careers, I was a teacher or a trainer and you find a problem, you create a solution and then you share that with other people. That's what you do. And granted, I had patrons at the time, both being government patrons, right, uh, through the university and through the army. So I didn't have to like sell those ideas. I didn't have to figure out a market change. That was just what I got paid to do. Um, and so what I found is, you know, I was, like I said, simultaneously pursuing that career in the military, simultaneously um, advancing towards my PhD, and then later on wanting to teach um, at a university. I had just gotten back from um, being deployed for Operation Iraqi Freedom. We had bought a house. I was trying to be a decent husband and homeowner, and there's just a lot. And I was like, I got to get my stuff together. I'm not able to do everything, right? So that was my frame at the time. I have got to get my stuff together. Um, and so I started reading all the literature, you know, the getting things done, the seven habits, and, you know, just reading all around. And I found myself frustrated because one poll of the literature, I, the personal development poll of the literature, talked a lot about ideas and vision and principles and values and things like that, but was super ineffective at telling you what you should actually do with your schedule and things like that, right? I didn't feel like it helped me anywhere at all with that. And the other poll of the literature was very tactical and granular with two-minute rules and, you know, um, how to write to-do list and things like that and 17 ways to hack a shoebox and all those things like that. It's like super granular. But my problem was in this messy middle of projects. Like I really wanted to know how am I going to complete these projects and get them forward and, and go from idea to project to on my schedule to done and keep that flow going. And that was where my problem was. And so as I started figuring that out myself, I was like, well, I should do what just about every other millennial does here and to share it on the web. Right. That's what we do. Um, and this was at the time, this was 2006, 2007, where lifestyle businesses were still in their infancy as a theme that you can do, like making money off the internet was still relatively new unless it was like e-commerce or you're selling software. And so um, it was a fun time to be starting because there was so much open space for how to do it, but it wasn't necessarily the primary reason why things got started. So you shared it, you, you did it because you had a place to share and you had ideas and that's, I don't know. It's just one of those things we did. And so that eventually steamrolled into what became Productive Flourishing. But I didn't start with a broad audience of creative knowledge workers. I actually started with academics because that's who I knew. And I was like, hey, here are some tools that, by the way, you've never been taught. Or at least I've never been taught. And we all struggle with this about how you can manage your life and your projects and things like that. Um, turns out at the time, not a great market. And who actually found the work was entrepreneurs, um, especially bootstrapped entrepreneurs and people whose livelihood depended upon them taking ideas and turning them into products of market value, right? Um, and so between creative knowledge workers who like, I actually, like if I don't finish these projects in time, I'm not going to get a raise. I'm probably going to get fired. And creative entrepreneurs who are like, oh, wow, I need to figure out how I'm going to make this thing and sell it that's who were attracted to my work. Um, and so it's just more like, okay, that's cool. They have a problem. I'm solving it. So I'll keep doing that and keep staying in this conversation. And I'm just feel really blessed to have been 
in conversation with folks for the last decade and some change. And I'm also really blessed and humbled that leaders and, you know, all sorts of other folks have shown up, executives and nonprofit leaders, all sorts of other folks have shown up. So like, I've got that problem. Can you help with that? And so I wish there are many days where I wake up in the morning and I wish I was like that visionary creative and I'm like, I've got this idea and this is what I'm going to write about until, you know, my fingers fall off. But I'm not that guy. I'm, I'm the guy that wakes up and I'm like, what are people struggling with? What what matters to folks right now? And how can I help? Um, and that's what generates pretty much everything that you've seen, whether it's the book or whether it's the website. It's all come from that place of like, well, not all. 80% of it has come from a place of what can I do to help? 20% yeah. of it has come from I've got this idea that's bugging the crap out of me if I don't write it. Um it's going to end up with me in marriage counseling with my wife because she's tired of hearing me talk about it. So I'm just going to, <laughs> I'm just going to publish it and be done with it and move on to the next thing. Yeah. It's funny. It's, it's funny how you're, you're playing to your strengths and that's what seems to be working for you. So you found what you're kind of, what you're good at and what you can kind of lean into and you've done that. And I think that's, it's definitely like, you're not, you're not trying to be that visionary creative that you mentioned earlier. You're just sticking to what you know and you know that you're helping people through that and you're good at doing that. So you kind of, that's what keeps things going. And it's interesting just looking at, I guess, um, you know, the imaginary evolution of, of how this has kind of gone about, like the way I'm thinking of it, the way I'm picturing it in my mind. And this, this that sounds fascinating because if you keep, you know, looking to serve and doing things, you know, your own way and being true to your own thoughts and feelings and intentions and things, you know, eventually come out well. I mean, that's, that's kind of what you've seen or we've all seen kind of happen over and over and over again. It's like a little pattern in life, but I just want to speak a little bit about the, the, do you feel like there's, there's like this primal or kind of, uh, innate sense within us to kind of, that holds us back in a, in a way, like, because we're all suffering from the human condition in some way that we all struggle with similar things or a lot of us do anyways. And, um, how does that kind of play out with, you know, you beginning things and, and obviously you would have struggled with a lot of things in the beginning that a lot of other people struggle with. So you know how that is, but, um, how do you see that? How do you, where do you, where does all this kind of procrastination and not being able to, you know, get things done and, and just finding ourselves kind of spinning our wheels sometimes, where does all this come from in your, in your perspective? Culture. Um, we, you know, we can get into a nature nurture sort of conversation, yeah, yeah. but we have to recognize that we're products of a broad macro culture. And so, and Western culture shares a lot of that. So um, whether you're in New Zealand or Australia or United States or England, there's a lot of shared cultural values that come, right? And so we end up picking up a lot of head trash and a lot of schizophrenic head trash at the same time. Um, from all of these different cultural elements coming at us through TV, through marketing, through religion, through school, through parenting. And so um, the funny thing about it is, or not the funny, the unfunny thing about it is that a, P, a belief does not have to be true for it to work on you, right? The belief that you're not capable of doing something doesn't have to be true. It's the fact that you believe it can end up in you acting out that particular belief, Right. And so um, we, I won't say we all, I don't know, will I say we all? I, yeah, I'll say we all. We all have this belief that somehow we're unique. We are uniquely defective in some way. Right. Um, we're too much of something. We're too little of something. We don't have this. We do have that. Despite evidence that we can be 
all sorts of things, right? We, I think one of the beliefs that we all have is that some way or the other, we're uniquely defective. And so we'll see people who are not any more gifted than we are, who are not any more resourced than we are. And we'll see them doing something and achieving something. And we'll say, well, that won't work for me because I got the thing, whatever your thing is. Right. Um, and whether that's a sixth grade teacher that yelled at you, whether it's a, um, physical disability. I'm not trying to say that either are not real things, right? But that becomes the thing because of that thing, I can't do X. But it can go the opposite way as well, right? Yeah, so absolutely. can go the other way. And so that's kind of my point is if it's true that it's not, the, it's not the truth of a belief that gives it power, but you're believing in it. We also have the ability to write our own narrative, right? We also have the ability to say, you know what, it's actually that you know, go back and pick on a sixth grade teacher. Like the fact that I was able at that time to endure and come out stronger than that means that I can endure other things now that I'm more sourced, right? And so I think we don't own the capability or own the responsibility for us to tell stories that actually support us thriving, support us building something that matters, that supports us building the community that we want to be in. Um, and it can be really, really hard work because to be a change maker in this world, you have to be functionally delusional. And by that, I mean, um, one, you have to have this very tentative relationship with reality. Um, because on the one hand, there are certain states of affairs that lead to certain outcomes. Now, on the other hand, we are the type of people that change those states of affairs. We, we change the status quo into some new thing. Right. So we have to sort of see on the one hand that the status quo is there and it exerts a certain force, but there's just room for us to change. And we have to think that our thing is going to be successful, despite the fact that so many other people's things are not successful. And so there's a degree of functional delusion that comes in there, right, for you to operate in this void between reality and possibility. Um, and I realize I'm sounding super woo right now, right? Sometimes people are like, what, what the hell are you talking about, Charlie? But I think when we, you know, understand that we live in that space, that also means that we can live in this space where our stories can be fluid. Our stories can be indeterminate, where we can look at the past and say, yeah, that happened. Yes, that's something that's going to weigh on me. Yes, I don't get to create myself out of nothing, Right. Um, and whether it's, you know, that you come from a disadvantaged population in your society, whether it's you come from a place of privilege, it doesn't matter. All of those are factors in it, but they don't determine a particular future. Right. Um, and though some of us have to walk upstream and others get to walk downstream, the fact of the matter is the journey is about walking and whether you're doing that or not. Do you find that just walking and just taking some action, even though you don't know what the hell's going on, sometimes things just unfold themselves once you start moving? Yeah, so in the, in the Army, it's actually called um, collecting intelligence by action, which means doing stuff and seeing what happens because you've done it. And that's the only way that you can collect that intelligence because otherwise it's inert. And so I'm not a fan. You know, I think... Again, being a change maker, being a, what I call a creative giant, um, you have to learn to live in some tensions and that that's the default way to be the most powerful version of yourself. And unfortunately, when we get into areas of tension, we want to resolve it. We want to make that go away. And then we choose simplistic options that don't actually help us see what's really going on. So case in point, you know, in the West, 
we tend to say, like, don't just stand there, do something. And in the East, it's actually inverted. Don't just do something, stand there. Both can be true at the same time, right? Sometimes when you're just doing, 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 and you're just like, I don't know what to do, so I'm going to do something. Sometimes you actually do just need to say, you know what? Maybe I just let things unfold a little bit and see what happens. And that's the action that I need to take. And then there are other times where maybe you've been sitting on the couch too long, metaphorically or physically, and you're like, you know what? I don't know what to do, but I got to do something, anything. And then you start doing something and then start collecting that intelligence. And I can't say universally right now, everyone should just go and be a bunch of doing, because I work with a lot of high achievers, a lot of, po- a lot of people who I like to call are those to-do list ninjas, where they just cramming through that list. But like every week they get to the end of it and they're like, but have I worked on the things that mattered most? Did I actually like, it, did this list of 72 things that I've done this week, will any of them matter in two weeks, two months or two years? Is that what you mean by doing your best work when you talk about best work in your book? Yeah. When I, the, I, when I talk about best work, I do mean doing that work that your soul longs to do, right? Doing that work that somehow or the other, you get to the end of the week or you get to the end of the month and you're like, man, I really didn't push that forward. <laughs> I really didn't do that. And I also want to call it best work for two reasons. One, because we have a very um, complicated relationship with work. Sometimes it's like a four letter word and then, you know, like it's an oddity of the English language that so many of our curse or profane words are four letters long, right? And work kind of becomes in that category thing. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to touch. It's not polite. It's dirty. It's whatever, right? Um, but at the same time, work can be sacred when you're doing the work that you're, that you feel like you're called to do, or you feel like the work that's, um, really making the world better at the same time that it's making you better. Um, there's actually a, um, term that I love. I learned this, I don't know, five or six years ago from the Shambhala tradition, um, which is called, which is called wind horse. So wind, like the blowing wind and horse. And it's the idea of when you are really doing work that's within your dharma or doing work that's most aligned with who you are, it's like you're riding a horse on the wind, like everything seems to be going for you, right? And so I think we've all experienced those periods of flow or wind horse or just when it seems like, wow, I was uniquely in the right place at the right time doing the right thing. Um, those tend to be echoes of your best work, but if you really want to get down to like, I think most people have at least some fuzzy grasp of what their best work might be because it's somewhere in a metaphorical or literal drawer, something you keep meaning to get to, right? Whether it's a book or whether it's starting a nonprofit, whether it's having kids. And that's the other thing that I want to say, um, the way I approach projects and work is that it's not just about economic work. It's not just about economic projects. It's the work of your life, right? And so um, in my sort of way of thinking about it, if it takes time, energy, and attention, it's a project, right? And whether that's cleaning out that closet that you've been meaning to get to for two years, whether that's moving across the country, whether that's getting your kids out of your house for the first time, whether it's getting a new job, whether it's buying a house, whatever, right? They're all projects. And the reason I want us to start the conversation that way when it comes to projects and work is that all too often, we only count the economic work as stuff that like is front of mind for us. And so when all this stuff of life hits us, 
we think, wow, I'm not making any progress. I'm not getting the, I'm not getting stuff done. I'm not being productive. I'm not, you know, what's wrong with me? I can't get it together because we're just looking at best of 40, maybe 45% of the total load of work and projects that we're carrying. And unfortunately, um, especially in, um, you know, Western society, especially in United States culture, we prioritize economic work. We prioritize economic projects and life work and life projects get sort of punted into when I have time or when I have an open spot in my schedule or maybe on Saturday and Sunday when oh. I'm not doing economic work. Or even when I'm retired or even further down the track sometimes. Further down the track yeah. when I'm retired, there's always some time in the future yeah. where there's like place to do that work. And in the meantime, our lives like just slip away. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and then we look back and say, man, I wish I would have had more time. Well, you had the time. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Charlie. It feels a little bit bizarre having to ask you guys for this, but I'm going to throw it out there anyways. So if you're liking the show, please consider leave me a very fast, quick review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. Uh, because it could really just help me out and help push the show further. And consider joining the tribe. Hit that subscribe button, head over to goodpeopleeffect.com and, and check it out. Uh, but yeah, back to the show with Charlie. guess I've kind of lived this lesson in a, in a way because I've been traveling for the last like year and a half. And I, what, one thing I've definitely learned is kind of time and the importance of those moments, the ones with your kids, the ones with your friends, the ones with you know, what you're just sharing and even the darker moments, the duality of everything is very important as well because heaps of, you know, different shades of life's experience comes through in all these different, you know, scenarios and it's important to live through them all and learn as much as you can through them all because that, that way you get to really experience what it is, you know, like what are we really doing here if we're not, you know, just having a bunch of experience and just existing, you know what I mean? Well, a, um, I talk a lot about displacement. Um, in the book, but also just in my work in general. And displacement is that idea that choosing to do one thing precludes you doing a practical infinity of other things, right? Mm. Um, is that kind of like you've only got so many, you've only got so many kind of bullets in the gun when it comes to focus? Absolutely, absolutely. And I've been talking about this for a while, but I was doing some research for the book and sort of accidentally found a quote by Stuart Brand via Kevin Kelly, via Tim Ferriss's, I think it's Tools of the Titans, um, or Tribe of Mentors, one of the two books. And um, Stewart's point was any significant project takes at least five years to see through, right? And so I thought in my head, I was like, okay, I, I've been talking about this for a while. Let, let's, I, I agree with that, right? I've been talking about project world and life being in three to five year chunks. But what I did in that case, and for some reason seeing it from Stewart made me think differently. And I was like, okay, so most of us are gonna live, you know, on average to be 85. So what you can do is subtract your current age from 85 and then divide by five. That's how many significant projects you have left remaining in your life. Do your days reflect that? Does what's on your schedule, does your project and to-do list reflect that? Is it getting you to one of those things that five years hence, you can look back and say, you know what? This is one of those projects that I would have voted to be on that list of projects or that I would have wanted to be. Or are you going to get five years down the road and be like, well, what happened, <laughs> right? Um, I'm still no further ahead. Now, we can disagree 
maybe it's seven years, maybe you can do some multitasking, maybe you can crunch some projects down, but the point is the same. You have a limited amount of time to really um, get some significant projects done. And remember, remember, remember that getting your kid from, you know, out of the womb to preschool to, you know, grade school to college and all those types of things, like that's all an extended project. So I'm not trying to say, I, I don't want people to do what sometimes it can sometimes feel like when we talk about this, it can feel like the world is just sitting on your chest. Like oh, I can't breathe. So what am I going to do? But many people, when we really get clear about priorities, we really get clear about projects and values. Turns out they are actually taking action on stuff that matters to them. They're just not doing it in an intentional way. And they're not counting the progress that they're making. They're not counting all of those trips back and forth to the doctor as they see their elder parent, you know, through this, through that last season of their life. They don't count that as a, as a project. They don't count that as, as something that would be on that list, except for it is yeah. right? by the way that they're prioritizing and making those choices. Yeah. I read, I read that part in your book and I found that really particularly fascinating. That was one point that I marked down and I found that it was just interesting because I've never looked at it from that perspective before. I've kind of come the other way and I've thought about when I was younger, I used to think about the amount of time I spent doing things that I really didn't want to be doing for that long. So like if I was to add up, you know, this is just a silly example, but if I was, if I spent ages in the shower every day and I you know, had like a, I don't know, 45 minute hot shower every day. And then I added up, you know, those 45 minutes over like my life or the rest of it, or at least 20 years, how many hours would I really be in the shower and how many days or weeks or months would that add up to? And then if I got to the end of my life and I had a schedule of everything I was up to, you know, would I really want it to take that much of a percentage? You know what I mean? And what, and probably not was the answer for certain things. And then I was kind of like, well, what would I want to be, you know, in that high percentage range? What kind of stuff would I be wanted, wanting to do? And I think, you know, to look back at your life with regret is, is kind of could be a misstep as well. But uh, even a lot of people say, you know, looking into the future, I don't want to look back and regret this. You know, I'm not sure if I totally believe, believe that approach. I still believe that it, it induces the right type of action for people, which is a great thing. And, you know, you do want to be, you know, be able to look back or even be enjoying your life while you're living it, while you're on this journey in a way that's kind of valuing the things that you've intentionally chosen to do or think about or feel or act on. Because uh, it all it all kind of connects. And I've noticed that there's a connection between, you know, the things you're thinking, the things you're doing, the way you're acting with other people. It's kind of contagious. So whatever that is, whether it's, you know, up, down, left, right or center, that's going to kind of connect with other people and that's going to, you know, have some kind of a chain reaction, even if we don't fully understand what that is. So it's fascinating how your kind of your energy, your space, your, I don't know, your vibes, I guess, for a better way of putting it is kind of all connected with everything else. And you can kind of cultivate, you know, that in the direction that you choose if you want to. That's just it's a fascinating thing to think about. Yeah. Well, and life is short and life is long at the same time. Right. Again, one of those to it, one of those tensions. And I totally get where you're coming from about regret, because I think a lot of times we overdwell on regret. Um, and I just look at it from a from a prioritization perspective. Right. In the sense of would I have made that choice like and I'll give an example on this. Um, a few years ago, uh, I was 
I was getting to the end. I was like, man, I'm getting to the end of like the ability of my time to complete my dissertation. Um, Cause there's like, there's a certain amount of time. And I knew I was like, mm, I'm getting close to that certain amount of time. I need to figure out when that deadline actually is. So I wrote the university and I asked, and I got the email back. It happened to be, I got the email back on election day, 2016. And, and in the States, that was a big, that was a big day for a lot of us here in the United States. And so I got the news about Donald Trump at the same time that I got the news that my dissertation um, had to be finished by 2017. So two months later um, or a month or two. Um, and so I was like, well, crap. And so I, I had this flood of like emotions of like frustration and resentment and regret and things like that. But then after about six or seven seconds of that, I was like, I felt a sense of relief because as I started thinking about it, I was like, what choice would I have made different such that I would have prioritized completing the, the dissertation as opposed to everything else that I've been doing? And as I replayed back all of those choices, I was like, I don't think I would have made a different choice. It simply wasn't a big enough priority for me. Um, and the peace came from that in the sense of like, you know, the regret was the unreflective um, feeling of attachment to that particular goal. Um, but the true reflection when it caught up to me, I was like, you know, I'm at peace with this. Even if I don't finish it, I, what would I have done differently, right? I'm but one man <laughs> with a limited amount of capability. And worst case scenario, I buy my way back into another university because that's really what the system is about. I sit through a few graduate courses. I do that sort of whatnot, and I complete that. Like, So, there, you know, obviously I wasn't on death's door, so I had more time. I realized I had more time at the same time that the time I hadn't spent working on it was all right because it wasn't a true priority. That's the reality of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting how you've, how you've kind of been able to separate yourself from yourself in a way and kind of have this kind of out of mind experience where you go through that and then you said it only took seven seconds. That's pretty impressive. And then you've stepped out of that and you've realized that this is just an attachment that you've created and it's not, it's not real. You know what I mean? And it's, yeah, that's, that's, that's a fascinating thing. And, and do you feel, I feel like meditation kind of cultivates that kind of way of being in your mind. Do you meditate at all? I do. So every morning it's at least, um, it's at least 15 minutes. It tends to be 25 minutes and it depends upon, I've got a very senior cat that likes to meditate with me. And some days it's 45 minutes cause she just won't get off my lap and I can't, I can't bear to boot a 20 year old cat off my lap. Yeah. So socks is my meditation buddy. Um, she may not be that much for that long cause she is an elder cat. Um, but yeah, I, I think it comes from that and I like to sometimes call it strategic mindfulness, which are two words that don't seem to go together. Um, but it's that ability to sort of on the one hand be in the moment, but be thinking, you know, at a higher level of perspective. And I think it's, I think it's a practicable skill. I don't know. I haven't tried to directly help other people learn how to do that. Um, but part of that is, and it, so I said seven seconds. It may have been three minutes. It may it was long enough. It wasn't one of those things where I dwelled upon it for three or four days. But you got also, to that point, yeah. I got to that point. It also helped that I was facilitating a strategic retreat 15 minutes from then. And so I was like, well, one way or the other, I got to get my crap together. Yeah, yeah. No choice. Um, so it's always helpful in that way to, to not – well, I have to be careful. It can be helpful to have something that requires full focus to give yourself room to figure something out. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but yes, I think meditation is a huge, um, um, hugely important tool for finding composure in stressful times because it reminds you, I think a lot of times that you're a part of your body, your, your emotions, you're part of your emotions or those are a part of you, but they're not the totality of you. And so anything that you feel, um, you don't have to identify with like, you know, saying it's very like linguistic. I am angry. Technically not true. You feel anger, right? But you also can feel other things, right? And so that seems to be a minor shift, but a lot of times we get cra- we get wrapped up into our emotion and this is who I am. This is how I am. This is what I am. When you're not, that's never true. It's interesting how uh, the language comes, you know, into it and how important the words are. Yeah. Yeah. So just being able to separate, I am angry from, I feel anger. Okay. But you can feel other things and you don't have to not acknowledge the anger, right? We're multiple, like we are, um, we contain multitudes, right? And so again, going back to tension, um, I'll give another example here. So I have a great team at Productive Flourishing that helps me do basically everything, right? Um, and, you know, sometimes it's the fact that I am frustrated and grateful with them at the same time. <laughs> the same person for some same experience, I'm both frustrated and grateful, right? Um, and that seems to be a minor thing, but when we look at our lives sometimes, because one, because we have a negativity bias, we want to solve against the frustration and we want to solve against the anger or we want to solve against the dark, as it were, without even acknowledging that in the same moment, at the same time, there's this lighter, there's this gratitude, there's this, you know, all sorts of things going on. And so what, how do we negotiate, navigate this life such that we're always, and to go back to that very specific example, so that when I'm talking to that teammate about why I'm frustrated with them, that I can either lead or just put just as much weight as on the same time, I'm grateful for how hard you're working here. And I really see how much, how much effort you put into this. I really see your intelligence shining through. I really see how you grasp that. I think it comes back to like kind of, so to interrupt you, kind of like yeah. saying, not only saying the positive things, when there's something negative that happens or seemingly negative, but also saying the gratitude at random times as if you would with the other stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, as I work with um, clients who are executives or have teams, just always remind them, like, we tend to think that if we give people the hard, if we talk about what's frustrating and we talk about that, that somehow it undermines the relationship. But if you never actually tell your team those things, then one, they don't trust the good stuff nearly as much. Is it just being polyannic? Is he just saying things? If they know with 100% clarity that if something wasn't right, they you would let them know. And if something wasn't good, that they would let them know. When you tell them it's good, they know it's good, right? Um, and when it not being when it being not to standard is not about their character, not about you beating up on them, not about you being a prick, then we can just say you, you swung and you missed right? Let's swing again. Let's figure out how we're going to do that. That's a different way of taking that, but they need both, right? Um, for them to actually trust you. And I fundamentally under that feel that if you're not articulating the frustrations that comes through to your communications and that 
it will just corrode everything going on. And then, you know, you'll do what most people do is have a blow up at some point where you go to them at the 72 things you didn't tell them over the last three months. Um, and they're like, whoa, where's this coming from? It's just a whole lot of negativity and just kind of this, this big bomb of just like what's happening right now. Like this hasn't been kind of slowly taken care of. It's built up, swept under the rug. Yeah, that's, that's, it's, it's interesting. The color, uh, color, uh, sorry, the, what's the, how do I say correlation? There we go. Of, um, you know, that kind of a, a particular scenario with your team and the dynamics of that with just like your family members or your friends and, you know, your relationships and people that you meet for the, even for the first time and just your inter, your general everyday interactions. There's really some lessons to be, to learn, to be learned from that. So I can just, these planes are going crazy today. There's quite a few going over. Um, but it does, it is kind of nice. I was thinking the whole plane thing when I hear a plane on a podcast because it, it kind of, puts me in the scene a little bit like it's like some kind of theater of the mind anyways um, I wanted to I want to change gears a little bit really quickly and I wanted to just shoot a few random questions to you about the book specifically and a couple of different things I've picked up in different chapters because I, f I found it fascinating as I mentioned before but it actually one thing that really impressed me was kind of the the depth that you went into with the different chapters and, and how you had that kind of a structure laid out I thought that was a really impressive thing and it's going to be hard to cover, you know, everything on the book and that's not the purpose of this. So I just wanted to pick out a few different kind of elements out of a few different chapters and just get your thoughts on them because I found them quite, quite uh, fascinating. Thank you. Let's go. Okay. So I guess this is kind of like a rapid fire question session. Right, um, my, my rapid fire. Okay. So you mentioned, um, you mentioned Tim Ferriss earlier in our chat and um, some of the books that, you know, that you've read and obviously have helped you in some way because they're, they're pretty good books and um, during your actual book you mentioned uh, Pressfield's work and resistance have you had a personal struggle with that and um, have you have you ever come across resistance and, and if so in which ways within your own life yeah I would definitely say that I've struggled um I've struggled in behavior with resistance. So I talk more about thrashing. Than yeah, resistance. you mentioned thrashing as well. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the subtle difference between resistance can sometimes be that, you know, is sometimes written as that external force working against you and so on and so forth. I look at thrashing as just what we do, right? Look at what we do. So there are plenty of times whether or not I'm fighting the resistance, I'm definitely thrashing, right? Um, and the way resistance slash thrashing comes up for me is it's always super oblique. Because, um, you know, in the, in the um, personalization that I'm doing here, it's not the right word, but the personification, there we go. The personification that I'm doing here is that I know if it comes, I know that it knows if it comes directly at me, I'm going to solve against it and beat it, right? But it's always lurking back there. It's always like, you know, it never comes, comes the way that it actually is. And so I know, for instance, if I go on a heavy research binge for something so that I figure out what I'm trying to say, that I'm probably resisting something. I'm thrashing in a certain way because that's just one of my clear signals of that. Um, I know because of patterns that um, if I choose to continually put myself in like an underdog position, um, I know that that's a way of me resisting sort of playing at my full capabilities, right? And so I know I have sort of learned my patterns of thrashing or my responsive to my responses to deep resistance and fear. Um, but, you know, I don't know if I wrote about it in the book, but some, I was talking to a friend and she mentioned that, um, you know, I was talking about combat experience. She's like, I don't know 
like I, I don't understand how people do that. She's, she's like, I think I would just curl up into a ball and cry, right? Or I think I'd just be crying my eyes out. And I was like, that's the thing is that you fire through the tears. It's not that you don't have the tears. You just learn the fire. You learn to move while you're having them at the same time. And so I think that's the best that we can, not the best. Um, the best would be to figure out how to unroot resistance. But I think second best is figuring out how to work even with resistance, you know, um, and not let it keep us from doing what we're here to do. Yeah, I think it's important to recognize that it's there. There's something there and there's going to be some thrashing and there's going to be some resistance and you're going to need to kind of sit down and battle that out. It's just not going to go away on its own. Um, and, you know, you need to get through it one way or another. So you may as well just start taking action. Yeah. I found, yeah, I just found that really interesting um, point in the book. Also found interesting the idea of the air sandwich. I liked how you put it. Seems like you've got like some words for some things that are really good because they really trigger the memory. Um, can you talk to me about the air sandwich, what that is and, and kind of your, your ideas on kind of tackling that kind of a um, thought pattern? Yeah, so when we look at our life, we tend to have big ideas, big picture, like big visions and, you know, sort of big, bold plans for ourselves. You can kind of think about that as the top layer of a sandwich, right? And then on the bottom, we have our day-to-day reality. And when we compare those, you know, the vision, the big ideas, the, you know, big, bold plans that we have for ourselves and the day-to-day reality, there's like a lot of air between that sandwich. It ain't no meat filling it in. But that's just an illusion because it turns out that in between that big dreamy life we want to have in our day-to-day reality are like five challenges that show up in different ways for different projects. And those are um, competing priorities, head trash, too few resources, no realistic plan, and poor team alignment. And by um, most of them are pretty clear, but poor team alignment, um, I consider not just your professional or economic team, but the team of people around you. And there's a big difference between the group and a team because a team is aligned on certain goals and and, um, have a certain sense of direction. And so when you're not getting to your best work, a lot of times it's because you have competing priorities, for instance, like you, you know, you just to be a cartoon example, like you want economic security, but you want creative freedom. And a lot of times they don't come together in the same package. Right. And so those two tear against themselves and one wins with the other. Sometimes it's that poor, that, that too few resources story where we tell ourselves like, if I just had more money, if I just had the right contacts, if I just had more time, then I would do X. Right. And so we think that it's too few resources that keeps us from working on, working on a project. And you can go through each one of those and they can work in concert and they can work in different ways on different projects, right? And so if you're working on a project that um, doesn't require money and things like that, then you might not feel too few resources as being one of those things. But what turns out oftentimes is that there's no realistic plan, all three of those being important. So no plan, it's not realistic, um, and there's no sense of any structure to making that idea happen. So, yeah, these come up time and time again, whether you're talking business or whether you're talking personal, um, one of those challenges are almost always present, but usually it's multiple. I feel like with me, one that I've specifically noticed has been the failure to plan. The way I look at things is I, I plan in a weird way and it's probably not the right way. I wanted to get your thought on this while I've got you here. So I plan in a way that's kind of like a couple of months ahead and then I'll break things down into weeks and, and days, like something that you talk about as well. 
And I, I, but I don't do it all at once. I'll have like a bigger plan where I'll plan once a month and then I'll plan things out in like more days, more kind of like the break the granular tasks down into days. But I fail to kind of plan long-term and it's something that you mentioned in your book, which was something I wanted to ask you about actually. You mentioned, you know, the importance to plan and you mentioned, you know, the smart goal setting and all of that. But then you also talk about not to plan too far ahead into the future, not to plan too big a picture, and I wanted to know, I guess, your thoughts on that and maybe, you know, some tips on people that might have the same problem, kind of struggling to plan, not really know, knowing how to plan. And it's also a little bit of like, can't be bothered, to be honest. Like, I don't really, if I'm going to be 100% honest, it's like, I don't really want to sit down and plan, you know, every single week for the next three months. And I want to be able to be flexible and have things move and change. And, but I still want to get somewhere. And I don't want that to me not wanting to do that to hold me back. So it's this weird kind of how much do I plan? How much do I get into it to a point where I'm not getting sick of doing it and wasting time doing that when I could actually be doing, taking the actions that, I, that I'm planning about. Uh, how do you, tell me what you think. Give us your thoughts on that massive like batch of scrambled eggs. Great. Um, so first off, I would agree with you that if you're trying to plan a given day, three months in advance, you're wasting your time. Right, um, because we know that as you get closer to that day, reality is going to shift. Reality has this annoying way of not looking like what our plan does, right? And the further out you plan, the more likely your plan is going to be off. Now, there are certain types of days where you might want to plan, like if you're going to get married in three months, you might want to sit down and think about what that day looks like because that's a day you're going to um, – it's a milestone day that you're going to alter reality to make to manifest in a certain way. Most of our days are not like that, right? Um, and I'm going to pause here. Uh, I will get to your question. It's it's a mental, it's some faulty wiring that we have is that we tend to look at some point in the future, just right outside of our vision and say, on that day, it's going to be a full day and I can do whatever I want to do. Like I'm going to have a full day to do whatever without realizing that the day before that, that day, it's going to look pretty much like today or what I'm going to say is you're going to wake up in the morning and that day will have a certain amount of just routine stuff already in it, right? It's going to have your chores. It's going to have your bathroom breaks. It's going to have your food. It's going to have all of those different things. If it's a day where you're going to work, it's going to have the meetings and the email. So you don't start any given day blank, right? There's already something in it. And just the reason that I say that is that um, that's, it's tied to that fallacy that we have when we look out three months from now and then we start planning that day. We don't see all of that stuff in that day, right? So yeah, absolutely. The other thing that I'll say here is when it comes to doing your best work, most of your best work projects are you're going to have to learn to master the quarter and to roll from one quarter size project to the next quarter size project to the next quarter size project. And that's usually two levels above what most people feel comfortable with. Like most people can get their arms around a week. Some can get their arms around a month. But to really master that quarter, is, it's something that we don't learn and we, we're not – well, something we're not taught. And there's an art to there that I can't really get into in, in, in this amount of time. So I would say for you in your given example, learning to match that two-month plan that you mentioned to what are the – you know, five projects that I want to get done for this quarter and how does that quarter roll into the next quarter? And am I working on the right project so that a year from now, these quarter size projects have built up to that? Now, I know that's very general, so I'll talk about a book because it's a familiar sort of thing for a lot of us, right? It can take 
you know, multiple quarters to finish a book. And there are chunks like, you know, create the table of contents and figure out what the vision of the book is and things like that. And many people don't understand that that whole ideation of a book can take multiple quarters of itself, right? But then at a certain point, it's like, write chapter one through three and give yourself a month to write a chapter. It doesn't seem like you're making that much progress until you look back at the end of the year and you say, wait a second, most books are between seven to 12 chapters, nonfiction books, I'll be clear, nonfiction books are between seven to 12, seven to 12 chapters. If you write a chapter a month, you can write a book a year, right? Um, and understanding sort of that broader flow of things, because we try to unfortunately compress projects down into a time horizon that we feel comfortable with without understanding we need to reverse it. We need to get more comfortable with bigger time horizons and projects that will take that long. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's see, what can I unpack here? Visioning. Um, that's where I wanted to talk about. So there's a difference. There's a conceptual difference, linguistic difference between visioning and planning. And I'm happy with people sort of visioning, like, what do I want this year to be? What do I, at the end of the year, where do I want to be? Like, that's a great exercise to do. Planning out every day of this year, not a great plan, right? Because it's, you're going to be wasting a lot of time and doing more time throwing out your plans or trying to adjust the plans as opposed to rather than coming up with a flexible way of creating like data plans. I call it block planning and I have tools in the book that, that help with that. Right. But I think thinking in terms of vision, what do I want this month to look like? And that's really what the five projects will help you do. Like what are the five things that I'm going to like say for this month um, I'm going to focus on. So I realize I've, met, I've, I've talked about the five projects rule a few times. So I'll just I'll do the brief version here. The long nerdy version of it is no more than five active projects per time perspective. Now only I'm going to say that, but basically what it means is, um, you know, it, we all I think know the difference between a month size project, you know, week size project. We know the difference between a quarter size project. Actually, that's that gets slippery for most of us and year size projects. So when you're doing your monthly planning, you know, it's like the beginning of the month or the end of the month, and you're looking at the next month, and you're saying, okay, what are the f- no more than five month size projects that I want to make sure that I get done this month? And that's the primary visioning process that happens then. Then you could start to chunk them down like, okay, if those are the five ones, what week size projects are do I need to do that push that month size pro- project forward? So I talk a lot more about this in the book of how to chunk that down. I think that's the missing gap is that people will pick a certain level of vision and not have the chunking um, and sort of planning and road mapping um, that they need at the time perspective right under that. So there's this gap between their day and where they want to be at the end of the month and they don't know how to fill that gap. Mm -hmm. And what role do you think, because I feel like, Everything you've said is good and well, and we've talked about regret in a way as well, like a long-term regret, what we mentioned earlier. But do you think there's an element of kind of letting things flow as well and kind of like if something happens, it breaks this plan or kind of you need to push something out? Like how do you find the balance between needing to push something out and, okay, this should have been done, let's get this done, let's take some action right now. But at the same time, everything's okay because everything's going to work out well and I shouldn't try to rush everything and create these attachments to time. Like, where's that balance? Um, so I would just ask someone to be thinking about 
the activities they do that at a certain point they know are waste. They're not getting them towards where they're trying to go. And if you're wasting your time in that way, then I think you can say like, that's where you can trim up. Like we can steal more time from wasted time to do more of the work that we matters. And that's easier than most people think. However, if that thing that came up that made you, you know, delay your timeline or, you know, do everything like that, if that thing was more matterful to you, if it was higher priority, then there's not a real problem. You did what mattered most in that moment. Right. And so what do you do about the time loss? Like that's just being, that's just part of this human condition and just coming to the recognition, much like I talked about with the dissertation earlier, where it's like, yes, I really did want to finish this project this week. Um, but my best friend's mom died and I wanted to console them for a couple of days and be there for them. So that pushed me off my deadline. Would you choose differently? Is the question, right? Would you rather have finished the deadline and left your friend hanging Right. Or however you want to tell that story so that it wasn't, you know, um, begging a certain outcome. Right. If you would have chosen differently, then that's where, you know, next time, like next time that happens, um, make this choice. And it's going to be a hard choice in that moment. Right. It's going to be a hard choice whenever that comes up. So I don't think we have to. What am I trying to say? Life is sometimes about hard choices. And I don't necessarily think that's a problem in the sense of like oh what do you how do you deal with hard choices well that's understanding did you make the right choice in that moment and if you didn't how can you do it next time is there some residue left over like maybe to give my example earlier maybe you chose to finish the project because you really needed to and if you didn't like you know um you wouldn't have a house next month or you get kicked out of your apartment and things like that Okay, so that's the choice you made. What's the residue left over for you? Like, do you call your friend up and say, hey, I wasn't there. Here's what happened. I'd love to take you out to dinner. Is there anything I can do to help? Like, those are all things we can do. Now, as far as um, learning to better estimate how long things take, that's also a learning thing, right? We humans are really, really bad at estimating how long things take, especially if we get down to things like minutes, Um if we're being honest, not many of us know how long it takes minutes-wise, which is why I talk a lot about block planning and using things like focus blocks, which are 90 to 120 minute, uh, excuse me, 90 to 120 minute blocks of time where you focus on a project. How'd you come up with that time, the 90 to 120? Um, several things. One is looking at circadian rhythms and understanding that our body refreshes about every two hours. Two, looking at attentional studies. I think I stole some of this from uh, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. Um, about about how long we can focus before we need to shift. It's all, again, based on the circadian. So they're like short, intense blocks of focus, right? Short, intense block. Well, short, 90 to 120 minutes is not short for a lot of folks. So I will say that. But um, it's enough time when you think about it for you to really get into a project, really fight through the blank page or really fight through that early mental cobwebs part of it to make some significant progress and also start to leave yourself some breadcrumbs so that the next time you start on that project, you don't have to start from scratch again. Yes, the breadcrumbs thing. I want to hear more about this. I want to hear more about this breadcrumbs thing because that's one thing that you mentioned in the book that you've just highlighted. And, and that was a, a, one that I really connected with. And I, found, I find myself leaving breadcrumbs all the time. And it's kind of like a different part of myself that's doing that. Have you ever, have you ever considered that kind of a perspective? 
tell me a little bit more about what you mean by a different part of yourself. Well, I feel like there's different parts of your mind and one part of your mind is telling you one thing and the other part is kind of getting you in shape and, and kind of hitting you towards what you should be doing rather than wasting time in, in that kind of a, in context. And sometimes I find myself picking up pieces from the last part of me and thinking to myself, like kind of like thank you to that other part, other part of me because this has made everything a lot easier. And sometimes I intentionally, I'm, I'm kind of in the moment leaving the breadcrumbs for that future part of me. So I'm actually the other side of me that's like, you know, the night before writing that to-do list and having things ready to go. So when I wake up, it's a lot easier when I'm a bit hazy in the morning. So it's, it's kind of this interplay between the two parts of me for lack of a better way of saying it. No, I love that. And I mean, there are different languages. Sometimes we call it the muse and the editor. Sometimes we'll call it the creator and the processor. But there are different languages that float around these different internal faculties, capacities, sometimes personas of ourselves. We don't necessarily need to go Freudian with, you know, id, ego, and superego. Yeah, it kind of comes back to Carl Jung as well, if you're thinking about the archetypes. Yeah, Absolutely, right? And so, um, but yeah, there are different parts of yourself. And, and so breadcrumbs are... Um, you know, it goes back to the Hansel and Gretel sort of story where they get lost in the woods. And so, so that they don't get lost in the future, they um, put breadcrumbs down so they can find their way back home, right? Um, we can skip over the part where animals eat the breadcrumbs because that's just, anyways, uh, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of fairy tales are actually um, quite scary um, and brutal. But um, in our purposes, it's the ways in which you can exit a task or a project um, to give yourself notes about where to pick up next time so that you don't have to spend the next you know, 15 minutes or 20 minutes of the next time, um, figuring out where you should pick up again. And I'll pause here. We, it goes, goes back to sort of faulty wiring that we have. When we're at the end of a creative session or a focus block, we tend to always think, or we tend to think, I won't say always, we tend to think that we're going to pick up on that project like soon, like imminent, like tomorrow or later this afternoon or two days from now. Reality is, it can sit for a week, right? Life happens, you get confused, you get scattered, whatever. Um, and so when you pick up that project anew, two weeks later, two months later, it's like, where, what the, what was going on here? I have no idea what I was doing, so on and so forth. And so one of the real virtues of leaving yourself breadcrumbs is that you prepare your future self for that work, right? You're, you're that helping hand so that you know, they can sit down and say, oh, okay, it says to start here because I put in capital letters, start here, right? Or even better, I put start here, finish this paragraph or, you know, um, or you resolve this tension or, you know, whatever your project is, you can leave yourself process notes about where you are. Um, sometimes, depending upon how much time you want to give yourself, um, you're working on a creative project, you'll reach a part where you just hit that wall where you don't really know what to do next and it's kind of stuck, right? Sometimes just documenting why you were stuck and some possible ways to get out of it gives your unconscious enough time in between the time and the next time to actually solve it. So when you sit down, you're like, ah, and the, and the answer is instantly in front of you. And so it's just always looking at your projects. If you've got a multi-pronged project, it's going to take a lot of sub-projects and sub-tasks. It's really, really helpful if you haven't already done that through a task list to point yourself like, here's where I'm, here's where I left off. Here's where I need to pick back up again, so on and so forth. And leaving yourself breadcrumbs can take, you know, three to five minutes. It does. It's not a long process, but that three to five minutes will save you so much time down the road, um, especially if it's a project you've been thrashing with or you've been scared of, because it's so easy for those to end up in a tar pit where it's just like 
you know, you put it in some metaphorical or literal closet and you look at it again, you're like, oh, no, not today. I can't do it today. Right. And you keep hunting and keep hunting it. And then some point at three to six months in the future, you're looking at it like not only is it a complex project that you can't into, can't get into. you got a shame story about it, too. Like, ah, I should have done this so long ago. What's wrong with me? Why am I still holding on to this? Um, breadcrumbs could just prevent that because you can always look at it and say, ah, oh, here's what I need to do. I can get back into it. And um, I didn't talk about it in the book. It, was, it ended up getting cut because um, it's already was something like 68,000 words long. Um, but there's sort of like there's a very similar principle to like the principle of uh, motion in physics, right? Where like an object in motion stays in motion, an object in rest stays in rest. I think projects and ideas are like that too, right? A project that has gone stagnant stays stagnant, right? Without a lot of work to get going. So the more you can keep things moving and people flow with them, the less that you'll end up in that situation to where like you just have that project or that idea and you just can't, you just can't engage with it. Ain't nobody got time for that. Right. Um, you'd rather eat ice cream or watch The Bachelorette or whatever it is. Watch The Bachelorette, huh? Is that the sneaky, sneaky favorite? <laughs> for me, no. Um, for a lot of folks, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it's keeping track really helps with that. So if, you, if you're just tracking down, like I remember when I was studying Spanish, you know, try to get as many days in a row not to break that chain. And then if I keep track of that as much as I can, then at least maybe I'll break the chain, whatever. But I'll have a lot more days completed and a lot more mini change or a lot more kind of you know doing the the right stuff more often i guess than if i didn't if i wasn't tracking it and uh, breadcrumbs is another great a great tip from the book yeah like just leaving yourself like leaving it in a nice way so you can pick it up ready to go and just yeah it's a good little habit to develop for sure so you've so this is like a book that you've put together um over how long how long did it take you to write that's always a tricky question because it, on one hand, it could be 15 years. Um, on another hand, it can be four months, four or five months. Because really like a, a product of all your experiences and everything you've learned through, you know, the military, like we talked about studying philosophy and just life. Yeah, it's really a distillation. And, you know, I wrote the book for many reasons. One of the reasons I wrote the book is because, um, you know, looking at productive flourishing right now, there's like a book-shaped hole in the business where there's really no canonical book that I can give someone and say like this, this will set you up without me always being like, but eh, you gotta, gotta add this or you don't pay attention to that. Or, you know, you need this one and that one then in chapter four from that one. And so, um, there's a part of it where it's just like, it was time for me to really, um, create that coherent body of work that does take people from the beginning, middle and end. And it has a architecture that, um, if you, if you are interested in reading book and you do read the book and you take it seriously, you might find yourself going through a bit of a hero's journey throughout the book. That's intentional because I wanted it really to reflect what it's like to go from an idea that really matters to its completion. And you will go through that hero's journey of trials and tribulations and challenges. Um, but the second, second reason that I wrote it is like, I just, it breaks my heart how much people have written themselves off. And in some ways, how much books in my genre of productivity and self-help have actually enabled that and made people feel worse about themselves, right? And so I didn't want to come through this with, with like, just one, like, here, you're not doing good enough. And, you know, all those sort of things that can happen as opposed to approaching it from a position of just 
fixing a few mindset pieces, but it really comes down to education and practice because nowhere along the line in schools that I know of, did someone sit someone down and say, here's how you plan out a project. Here's how you do your schedule. Here's how you do these types of things, right? They assume that you figure that out along the way somewhere, but we don't, right? And so my, my approach here is that like we're all so much more capable than sometimes we will give ourselves credit for. And the gap between where we are and where we could be is really filled with, you know, some of the air sandwich stuff, competing priorities and being clear about it. But a lot of it is just practice and getting ever more clear and more skilled at making better choices. Or I won't say better because even that judgment, making choices that most instantiate our values and priorities, sticking with them and learning how to celebrate and build teams around us um, that help us get where we're trying to go. Cool, man. <laughs> that was amazing. I think I feel like just having this conversation and this is kind of why I want to do this podcast because I can have this kind of conversation with you and people like you and people, you know, everyone's totally unique as well. So different types of people and just learn from their perspectives and their experiences and their lessons and their stories. Like this is so great. I feel like I'm learning so much just by having this conversation and it's like this energy that we're sharing that other people can, you know, also learn from. So thank you so much for sharing your, I don't know how, how else to put it, but kind of wisdom from experience. You know, it's, it's really great to meet someone like yourself, Charlie, and, and to be able to have this chat. And I'm so glad that you decided to, to come on the show. Well, thanks so much for having me and really appreciate you shining a light on the work. Thank you so much for giving the Good People Effect Season 2 a chance and tuning into this very special relaunch episode with Charlie Gilkey. I hope that you got something potent out of the show that will really help you on your own journey. And if you did, please consider leaving a review. I'm putting together a bit of a tribe and I'm going to be connected with my tribe through a monthly newsletter where I'm going to offer heaps of free giveaways heaps of contests, uh, free online courses. There's also going to be reading lists included and podcast suggestions to help you on your own personal growth journey. So if that stuff sounds good for you, if you're serious about you know really developing yourself and expanding your consciousness and growing from the inside out, then head over to goodpeopleeffect.com and sign up for all the good stuff I've got coming your way once a month. goodpeopleeffect.com, monthly newsletter, good stuff. Uh, but yeah, next week, there'll be a very special guest on the show as well. And every week after that, you'll be getting good stuff delivered to your ears. So stay tuned for more. And I hope that the rest of your week goes well. And remember to smile. Thanks.